Father, we trust you. Uh, your word commands us to trust you, and your word commands us to obey you. And then your word promises that when we obey you and when we trust you, you will act. So for any disobedience in my life, any disobedience in our lives, we ask for your forgiveness. We confess those things, we lay them at your feet, and we claim the blood of Christ over them because you tell us to. We know that even over those sins that we still hang on to, you are our conqueror. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him. And so, with the obedience of Christ covering us, and with the righteousness of Jesus' ability to trust, we trust you. And we pray that your spirit would do a miraculous and awesome act through your word this morning. We pray this in the only name that matters, the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we started 1 Timothy, and we discovered much about Timothy and Paul and the situation for which Paul writes this letter to Timothy. So we did a little bit of a like historical context to give the letter a little more meaning and understanding. And what we saw was the importance of Christ as our eternal hope. And not just our eternal hope, but our temporal hope during this life. And we'll address that again briefly this morning. But as we pick up in verse 2, we'll see that Paul hints at a significant truth that is required of all of us. And that truth is a characteristic. It's a characteristic of God, and it's a characteristic of his people. At least it should be. It's a characteristic of Christ in us. And without Christ in us, we can't have this characteristic in a way that honors God. And that character trait is humility. Now, Paul doesn't use the word humility in this text. At surface level, it doesn't look like it's about humility. But what is revealed is that humility is one of the main concerns that Paul's addressing throughout the letter And that humility shows up in a different issue, and that issue is authority. From God's authority to Christ's authority, down to Paul's authority, down to the church's leadership and elders' authority, that is kind of how God uh, works his hierarchy of authority in the church. It's a major issue that Timothy has to deal with in Ephesus. So for those of you who don't know, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. Paul brought Timothy there, left Timothy there, and then Paul left Ephesus, and Timothy stayed, and he pastors the church in Ephesus. And in the church, there's a lot of issues. One of those issues, and one of the biggest themes of this letter, is church function and structure, and one of the important aspects of church structure is the authority in the church. And what is clear throughout Scripture is God has a hierarchy of authority from God himself to Jesus the Son, Because 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that God is the head of Christ, just as uh, the husband is the head of the wife. And so we have a hierarchy of God the Father to God the Son to the apostles, whom are those who wrote Scripture. 
So we have the authority of God and the word of God through the apostles down to church leaders and elders. Timothy is one of those church elders slash pastors slash leaders. And so that if you read verse 2, what you don't see there is an explicit statement about church authority and humility and leadership and hierarchy, but it's subtly placed in this verse. And if we take this verse and put it in a larger context of 1 Timothy, it's pretty clear that Paul is asserting this right off the bat, that there is a hierarchy of authority in the church that is very important, and Paul is establishing with Timothy that, it's between, that there is a hierarchy between him and Timothy. We'll address that as we go. So Paul is establishing in his relationship with Timothy one of the main themes in this letter, which is authority and submission, both of which require humility. If you are to submit, it requires humility. If you are to lead and have authority, that also requires humility. In order for that relationship of authority and submission to work, both need to be humble. Because the, what's it, uh, the, the most prominent problem with authority and submission is that either the one who has authority wields it in arrogance and then becomes abusive or a brute or overbearing and can't lead well. And it creates friction in the relationship with those who are supposed to submit. And if those who are supposed to submit are not humble, they become arrogant and proud and they try to usurp authority or take some sort of route to uh, challenge authority in an unhealthy and ungodly way. So there can be problems on both ends of that relationship. So both church leaders, elders, and the congregation all need to be humble. So we all just need to be humble. I mean, that's, that's really the message at the end of the day. Like, we need to be humble. And no one here is going to argue with that. Of course we do. Like, that's a characteristic of God. It's something we're commanded to do in Philippians chapter 2. Um, but it, it's a problem in Ephesus. So Paul doesn't address it specifically in this text. What he, He's going to address it later, but he establishes kind of this foundation for authority and submission right off the bat in verse 2. So we read verse 2, and Paul says to Timothy, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have grace, mercy, and peace, which are characteristics of God that he showers upon us in Christ. So we also get grace, mercy, and peace. We get his grace. So our relationship with God is predicated on his grace and his mercy towards us, and it creates peace between us and God through Christ. And not only do we, is, is our relationship with God dependent on grace, peace, or grace and mercy and peace, but also he gives us those same characteristics to share with others. So now our relationship with one another is dependent on grace, mercy, and peace. And if it wasn't, I probably would have been fired a long time ago. <laughs> and you probably would have left a long time ago. And none of us would have a good relationship, but we'd all hate each other, and we'd be fighting all the time, and we'd all think we're right, and everyone else is wrong, and we'd be fighting and arguing, and it would just be total disaster without grace mercy and peace. I make mistakes and you're gracious. You make mistakes and I'm gracious. We make mistakes with each other, we're gracious. You make mistakes and you're gracious, gracious and merciful with each other. We have to be. Because if we're not, then we can't reveal the gospel. And 
And even in times when there is sin in your life or sin in someone's life and the Bible, let's say the Bible commands us to specifically address that sin in a particular way that seems at surface level maybe harsh or rough or difficult. And we would say, well, that's not very gracious. Well, if that's what God commands for us to deal, if that's how God commands for us to deal with a sin, then it is grace and it is mercy to deal with it. And we'll see that come to life as we go through 1 Timothy because there are sins in the Ephesian church that Timothy has to deal with. And when you look at how he's commanded to deal with those sins, you might go, where's the grace and mercy and peace that was talked about back in verse 2? And I would argue that the grace and the mercy and peace that happens in verse 2 shows up in how we deal with sin as well. We'll cover that down the road. We know that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. When you look at Acts 16 and you see Timothy running to Paul and um, Timothy is obviously heard of Paul. So Timothy lives in Lystra. And Paul shows up in Lystra. Just in Acts 14 through 16, we kind of have this, uh, the details of Paul's journey in and out of Galatia. So again, Galatia is modern-day Turkey, and in Galatia are a bunch of, uh, is, is a province, and in that province are a bunch of towns like Iconium, Derby, Lystra, um, Antioch, and these are the churches that Paul writes his letter to the Galatians to. Well, this is where Timothy's from. So Paul goes to these places. He goes to Lystra, preaches the gospel. Paul, uh, people believe when Paul preaches the gospel in Lystra. When, done, when Paul's done preaching the gospel, and I know I've told you this story many times, Paul gets stoned for preaching the gospel. And so people think that Paul and Barnabas are these gods and so they try to worship them, and they're like, don't worship us. And they preach the gospel, and people believe. And then the Jews show up and go, yeah, no, they're not gods. They're actually false teachers. Let's kill them. So then everyone's like, yeah, we agree. Let's kill them. And then they just stone them. And Paul gets stoned to the point where he is seemingly dead. So they believe he's dead, and they drag him outside the city. And he wakes up. He's not actually dead, but you can imagine the condition he's in if everyone believes him to be dead. And I can't imagine how terrible it is to get stoned. So... He's probably in bad shape. He gets up from being nearly dead and leaves and goes and preaches the gospel in a different town and then comes back to Lystra to do one thing specifically, to strengthen those who believed when he was there when he got stoned and then preaches to them, this is how you get to heaven, through trials and tribulations. Through much suffering, we get to heaven. And Paul's life is a perfect example of that. And that's how he strengthens the believers. So he preaches the gospel. They believe. He gets stoned nearly to death. These people see it. Paul comes back and goes, yep, that's what it takes. What you just saw me go through, that's what it's going to take. It's going to hurt. Some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to be killed for the faith. Some of you are going to be stoned to death. Some of you are going to be hung on a cross. Some of you are going to be pulled limb from limb. Some of you are going to be burned alive. Some of you are going to be beheaded. Some of you are going to be tortured. You're going to suffer for Jesus. That's the cost. And that is 
all over the New Testament. That's not just like a little piece of the New Testament. If you look at the Christian life in the New Testament, there are no believers, not one, who has a comfortable, easy, and nice, simple life where they're just like, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to go home, do my job, have a wonderful life with my wife and kids, go back to church next Sunday, and repeat over and over again. No hardship, no trial, no difficulty, because the way in which the first century church lived the life and the situation, the cultural situation they were in, required hardship. Because the reality is, Rome The Roman occupation over most of the known world in the first century is not more extreme than the occupations that are happening in the world today. It's just that we have more of them throughout the world. The world, you know, we're we're connected by cell phones. We know everything that's going on. You could literally text message someone in a different country right now and get an instant response. That wasn't even possible when I was a kid. Just think about how how much things have changed. And so all over the world, you have occupation of different nations or whatever, consuming an entire area. And in some of those, many of those places, unlike in America, there is a strict resistance against Christianity. You're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to worship Jesus. They have to do it in hiding. They have to do it in secret. And if they're caught, they will die. If anyone finds out they're a Christian, they will be beheaded. That happens in this world today. Today, this Sunday, there is a Christian who will be killed for their faith, statistically, and more than one. And we don't even think about that. And, and, I, and I'm grateful to God. So I'm not saying like, oh, we ought to be dying for Jesus. That's not even my pitch to you. We ought to be incredibly grateful that we live in a country that has such freedoms that we can just do this however we want. No one's stopping us from meeting. No one's stopping us from worshiping Jesus. You can put a Jesus is the answer bumper sticker on your car and you're not going to get pulled over. You can do whatever you want. I mean, that's a lot of freedom. Now, here's the reality. Our persecution for our faith will look different, therefore. Right? So if you go out on the street corner, I mean, I've, I've, you've, we've probably all seen this. You ever go to any major city, there's always somebody standing on a corner with a big, like, yellow poster board with lots of black marker on it that has, like, some revelation verse on it. And they're going, Jesus is coming back! Jesus is coming back! Repent of your sins! Like, that guy's not getting arrested. He just stands there all day and preaches. I don't think it's most effective way to preach the gospel but people do it and he has the freedom and the right to do that and he and there are places where that would never happen so our persecution in america is going to look very different than the persecution that happens in azerbaijan if you've never heard of that place it's a place where you cannot go there and be a christian so christians have ministries where they start businesses in those place in those places and they their biz, their business is a cover for their mission to preach the gospel so they can stay in the country. We don't face that. You can have your own business downtown Osceola at a storefront and call it Jesus loves you business. Come on in and we'll get you saved. I mean, you could do that in America. Should we start one? (laughs) That'd be cool. The Jesus saves store. 
We just have Bibles and gospel tracts. Anyways, so we can, we can do whatever we want. And so the persecution that happens in our, in our faith in America is just going to be so different. It's going to be so different. It's going to be more subtle. And I do believe that because the persecution is lesser here, it has made softer, weaker, and more fragile Christians because we have not been hardened by trial. And you might say, I've been through a lot of trials in my life. Not like Paul, not like Timothy, not like Peter, not like John, not like any of the believers, not just the apostles, but any of the believers in the First Testament. We, we have not faced their kind of trials and their kind of tribulations. Well, they have a different culture. They do, and that's why their trials were different. But we are, I believe, a softer, more fragile people because our hardships are easier. But nonetheless, I believe that if we lived our life righteously and more biblically faithful, we would face harder persecutions. I'm not saying we're all going to go to jail and die, but it would be different because Paul tells Timothy later, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes a second letter to Timothy, in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. And, and how your persecution, how you experience persecution in this life in America is going to look different than in other places. But I, I genuinely believe that it is easy in America to not obey the Bible. It's just easy. Because we have such a soft gospel. I say we, I just, I mean Americans in general and kind of the, the universal church in America. Because there are, there are, let me tell you, let me share a stat with you. There are three, approximately 300,000 churches in America. 200,000 of those churches believe in the basic principles of the faith, such as Jesus is God, uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, things like that. Some of the most fundamental and foundational truths that, that we adhere to only two-thirds of the churches in America believe those things, which, I mean, if we're going to be getting hung up on semantics here, I would say that if 100,000 churches don't believe those things, then those aren't churches, right? But they're technically called churches. So only two-thirds of churches in America believe the most fundamental doctrines. That might not be surprising. This should be surprising. 2%. 2% of that 200,000 actually teach those doctrines. How many churches is that? 4,000. 4,000 churches. That's not a lot. That sounds like a lot to you. You've got to get a bigger scope of America. There are churches everywhere. How many churches are in within 10 miles of this building? Like 20? So, 
4,000 churches in America teach the fundamental truths of the word. I could probably name, well, I don't know how many I could name. That's not a lot. That's not a lot at all. Which only further validates my point that the American Christian is soft. And the reason they're soft is because they face nothing hard. And they face nothing hard because they believe nothing hard. Or at least if they believe it, they don't proclaim it or teach it or represent it. And because of that, we're a soft country. We're a soft church, generally speaking. So when I say the church in America, 300,000 minus 4,000 is 296,000. So I'm pretty comfortable saying out of the 300,000, 296,000 churches are soft. 98% of the churches are soft. I don't want to be a soft church. And I also, just to be clear, I don't want to be a church that is so against the softness of the church that we become too hard, right? Or too harsh, or too brute, or too, what Paul, the opposite of what Paul says here, gracious and merciful and peaceful. So we need to strike a balance, which Paul is helping Timothy do. And so Paul has this relationship with Timothy that is, and they've been through a lot, all these hardships and these sufferings and these trials, they've been through them together. And while Paul was in with, with Timothy in Lystra, when Paul went through all that stuff in Lystra, the preaching and the hardship and the beating and the almost dying and then leaving and then coming back and preaching again and then leaving and then coming back a third time. Through all that, Timothy witnessed Paul preach the gospel, live the gospel, almost die for the gospel, and then proclaim, that is the gospel. And then Timothy got saved. And Paul picked him up and he took him with him and he went around and Paul was imprisoned for his faith Timothy was imprisoned with him. They end up in Ephesus. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus. But in that time in Lystra is when Timothy comes to find Christ as a Savior through Paul's preaching. And we know that it's through Paul because in verse 2, Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. Which means that Timothy believed the gospel, not from his mother Eunice or his grandmother Lois, who were faithful Jews and faithful believers in Christ, but he learned it from Paul. And this is such a great experience for Timothy because he can forever say to the church that he learned the gospel under the great apostle, under their very own church planter, Paul, whose authority is like wielded and established by this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. Now this idea that Timothy is a true child in the faith to Paul reveals this important Christian characteristic which is humility. It automatically establishes and confirms a hierarchy, hierarchy of authority. Paul's letter is Paul's authority. And Paul's letter is God's authority. Paul is handing Timothy a letter, and it is Paul's authority. And Paul's authority is predicated on Christ's authority because Christ revealed himself 
physically in person to Paul at least two or three times to teach Paul the doctrines that he needs to teach the church and to lead the church and to establish the church and to build the church and to spread the church. So Paul gets his authority from Christ personally. And Christ gets his authority from God the Father. So the letter that Paul writes to Timothy is God's authority. So humility is assumed by Timothy because humility is required in order to submit to a higher authority. And that's a huge theme throughout the book. And it's established kind of subtly here. It's kind of like, like before Paul teaches the doctrine of authority and submission and humility, first he just jumps right into a practical application of it. Timothy, I'm your authority. Without saying it in so many words, but he does call himself an apostle to clarify this authority comes from God. So if you think about it from Timothy's perspective, Timothy has a lot to boast about. Like Paul is famous in the church due to the fact that he previously was the primary persecutor of the church trying to kill Christians before he was converted. And now that he met Christ on the road to Damascus and got saved, he's now spreading the gospel and preaching the truth and establishing churches and building up believers and is one of the most important church leaders. He has authority from the church, the council of, of, of church leaders in Jerusalem. They have sent Paul on these missions. Paul has, so Paul not only has his own authority, he has the authority of the church, it's the larger church itself, who are sending him on these missionary journeys to establish churches. And he's got authority directly from Christ himself, who is the, whose authority comes from God the Father. So Paul's the top dog in the church at the time. And Timothy has Paul as a mentor. Can you imagine how cool that'd be if you're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm like, I don't know, who's someone who everybody, everybody knows the president of the United States. I mean, you might not want that guy to be your mentor, but like, <laughs> um, that's between you and God, but um, still, I mean, can you imagine the name dropping you do if like, the president of the United States was your mentor and you talked all the time and he wrote you letters. He's like, hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you. Why don't you do this and that? He'd be like, oh, yeah, the president. We're like buddies. I could text him right now if I wanted to. I mean, can you imagine how what kind of like, you know, authority you could seemingly have with that or what you could get away with if you had that kind of relationship? Well, Timothy has that opportunity. Because he's got the great Apostle Paul, really the primary church leader. The guy who's established the very churches that these leaders are leading in. Timothy has a direct relationship with Paul. And he could wield that inappropriately if he wanted to. He could be name-dropping Paul all the time. He could be like, well, Paul told me this or that. And the church would just believe him. But Timothy is required... Instead, to submit to Paul's teaching and to ensure that Paul's teaching is not only between Paul and Timothy. And so what this letter does is this letter serves as validation to the rest of the church of Paul's genuine and Timothy's genuine biblical theology and practice. And what that does is it holds Timothy accountable to the truth so that his ministry doesn't stand on anything other than God's authority revealed through his word that was written by the Holy Spirit through Paul. 
And that's why these letters are so important. That's why the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are so vital to the church. It's clarity for church leaders on how to lead a congregation. It's clarity for the congregation on what to expect from their church leaders and what the structure of the church should be and how the church should be organized and who's qualified for certain roles of the church and who's not qualified and what's things so, so the, and how to deal with sin and how to deal with sin publicly and how to deal with sin privately and how to, uh, how to teach and what to teach and what to avoid and what things to say and what things not to say. The importance of the word itself is validated in the word itself in these letters. So there's so much about the structure and the function and the practicality and the logistics of being the church that are established in this letter. And if Timothy veers from the authority of Paul, who is really the authority of God, trickled down into Paul, and now into Timothy, if Timothy usurps Paul's authority, then Timothy's out of order. So Timothy's required to submit to Paul. Just like I'm required to submit to Paul, and Timothy submits to Paul in this letter. And I submit to Paul in this letter. And Brian submits to Paul in this letter. That's how church functions is that the church leaders submit to the word of God itself. This book is the authority in the church. In the same way that though we have human beings who fill offices and roles in our country, and some of those roles uh, are very high up, very high authority, say the president of the United States is the highest authority, but... Does he have something or someone to whom he submits? Yeah. And it's not the American people. It's the Constitution. There's a document that serves as an ultimate authority, and the President of the United States' responsibility is to uphold the Constitution. To hear the needs of the people, to serve the needs of the people... Whether, that, whether they agree with it or not, it's to serve the needs of those people in a way that validates and is in line with the Constitution of the United States. It's no different than the church. And the church didn't get this idea from the United States. Let's just be clear about that. Okay, The United States got this idea from the church, from the Word of God. And so... Each church has church leaders, and those leaders' responsibility is to submit to a document, and that document is the Word of God, because the Word of God carries the authority of God Himself. And that is really one of the major issues that Timothy has to deal with in Ephesus, because it's a problem in Ephesus, and then Paul will teach Timothy how to deal with it. But before he even talks about that doctrine and the practice of acting out that doctrine in an appropriate way, he first just kind of establishes, like, there's a relationship between me and you, Timothy, where you're my child in the faith. I'm the authority. And Paul doesn't do it in an arrogant way. He doesn't say, I'm your authority. He's like, hey, you're my true child in the faith. It's a very sensitive and comforting and almost a father-like way in which Paul delivers this truth this, to remind Timothy of his position. Submit to my letter. Not because I'm great, Timothy, but because this is God's word. So you're submitting to God. And I look at the Bible and I say that's my job I like I have to hear I have to I have to pretend like Paul is talking to me not Timothy like I could read first Timothy and 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 start verse two and go to Mark my true child in the faith 
Because I believe the gospel through Paul's words. Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. I heard that and I went, okay. That was Paul. Now, someone else said those words to me. But that was Paul. Those were Paul's words that I believe. So I could read this because I'm a pastor like Timothy. Timothy's a pastor in Ephesus. I'm a pastor in Osceola. I could say, to Mark, my true child in the faith. Great. I could read this and go, oh, Paul. I know Paul didn't write it to me. But it's, it's directly applicable to me. Because I'm Timothy in this role. And so is Brian. Biblically speaking, so is Brian. So, as, as we're both elders in the church. And so, when I read this letter, I'm just like, I was so hesitant to preach First Timothy. Because it's just so hard to, to preach about the things that I'm supposed to do and what that means for you. That's kind of a difficult uh, those are difficult waters, sometimes rough waters to navigate. And so pray for me. <laughs> and, and I pray a lot about it. And, and so ultimately, um, there's going to be times during this, as we go through First Timothy, where I am going to be, I have to, asserting my biblical authority. Like I have to teach about my biblical authority and my, and I'm just being honest with you, my fear is that it will be perceived that I have uh, like an arrogance to my, because, oh, I say, and I'm a pastor and I get to do this or there, say this and that. And I don't, I, I'm, that's not my heart. Um, is that in my f- flesh that is it's pure sin? Yeah, it's in there somewhere. But greater is he who is in me than he who's in the world. And I am, a new creation in Christ, and my prayer is that the righteousness of Christ would overcome any arrogance or self-exaltation or self-righteousness that I have in my heart and in my mind as I preach through 1 Timothy, and that as I preach 1 Timothy, there's going to be times where I'm going to say things that look like I'm elevating myself or my position, and the reality is that's because the Bible does. But it's not elevating Mark, it's elevating church leaders, to a specific role. So it's not about me, and I know that most of you, you know, know that about me and believe that, um, but if I'm being honest, uh, I have sin in my heart, too, just like you do, and uh, I'm going to have to prayerfully kneel before the cross and take that arrogance and that selfishness and that pride and just put it on Jesus' shoulders as he dies on the cross and just watch him bury those sins and watch him rise out of the grave and watch him bring his righteousness and just cover me with it and then pray that, could I please, Lord Jesus, teach this book in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Like, that's my only hope. So, I say all that because there's hard things in this letter. Things that are hard for me to say, things that are gonna be hard for you to hear, things that are like, what? God commands you to do that? That's gotta be a tough scenario. And it is, and there are. And in order for us all to get along and get through this book together, 
in a righteous way, we, all of us, myself and you, need humility. In order for there to be proper order in the church, which requires an authority and those who submit to that authority, in order for that to function properly as God designs, everybody has to be humble. And if we're not, it won't work. It won't work. So my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is humility. And I know none of us are perfectly humble, but like, man... Do you pray for it? Because if you're like, if our, if our thinking, and I think this is part of the softness of our church, not our church, but the church in America, part of the softness is we say things like, oh, I'm just a sinner. Oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm just, I, I've got this sin. I'm, I'm not as humble as I should be. And it's like, that's, that's false humility. When we, when we identify as sin, and we say, oh, I, you know, I've got that sin because I'm not perfect yet. You know, I'm just a dude who's growing and learning. And we just mention the sin and we kind of say, yeah, I'm just not there yet. And then we do literally nothing about it. That's false humility. And it's sin. And it's actually arrogance. And it's false humility because we make it look like I care about that sin in my life and I wish it wasn't there. So I say it out loud and then you all believe that like, oh, he's so humble. He recognizes his own arrogance. What humility. And it's like, I'm just going to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm actually really arrogant in my heart and I need to grow in humility. And then do nothing about it. That's not humility. That's arrogance. It's arrogance because you're showing people, look how humble I am by recognizing my own sin, and then I'm going to turn around and just live in it. That's not Christ-like. Don't tell me about your sin and say, oh, I'm just a, just a sinful person. Do something about it. Don't tell me, yeah, you're right, I need to grow in humility. Grow in humility. Amen. Don't tell me about it. Show me. Show one another humility. And let's be honest, when we ask God for help, he helps, right? You have not because you ask not. And then 1 John chapter 5 explains why you have not. And you have not because you're not asking for the right things. If you ask for the things that God desires for you, you get them. It's, it's a promise. If you ask for a new Ferrari, you're not getting it. You ask for the Packers to win the Super Bowl, it's never going to happen! <laughs> Just wanted to show a little love to the Vikings fans. So, <laughs> I'm wearing a Packers watch, okay? <laughs> so, if you ask, if you ask, for the thing that God says he wants to give you, he's promising you he'll give it to you. If you ask for patience, you'll get patience. If you ask for wisdom, you'll get wisdom. If you ask for humility, you'll get humility. Now, how you get it matters. Because we think, because we're a consumer culture. We're a consumer, everything we do is consume. We go to a party, we consume. We go to the store, we consume. We go home, we consume. We go to church, we consume. Very little do we give out. 
So we're a consumer-minded. We don't even we don't even recognize how consumer-minded we really are. Even the most the people who are most conscientious about it are still consumer-minded. We're, we're surrounded by it. It's, it's who we are as a, as a as American people. And this consumerism mentality makes us think that if I go to the store and I pick this off the shelf and I swipe my card, I get to take this home. And you do. So if I go to church, I want to sit down and be told what I want to be told. And I will. And if this place doesn't do it, I'll go to the next place that will. And Paul literally warns Timothy about that in a second letter. And he says to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Because we're consumers. And we just want what we want. We think we can have it right away. So we have a consumer mentality when we come into church. This church should do this. I should get this. The message should have this element and that element. And it should have this in it. I should hear a good story, a funny joke. Every eight minutes I should be reminded. I should, you know, it should be lightened up. I heard a preacher preach that once. Every eight minutes tell a joke so that your people uh, can stay on track with what you're teaching because they're used to watching television, which has commercials every eight minutes. And I thought, we're going to let television decide how the church functions. I'm yelling because it makes me so angry. I just like, that's insane. Now, like, is there a little bit of value in there? Absolutely. Would it be, could it be wise in a particular context to, to insert a little bit of levity into a sermon? Absolutely. Like, I'm not saying that, that doesn't matter. you shouldn't do that, but... My point is we come expecting a certain thing and we want that thing and because we always get what we want, you always get what you want. You can say, oh, I don't get what I want. That's not true. In America, you get what you want. Anywhere you want. And because we have this consumer mentality, when we go to God, what is our attitude? Lord, give me wisdom. Like, come on, let's go. Now, we don't talk to God that way because we know who we're talking to. So we got a reverence for him. So we kind of put forward this, this, uh, this like, humble disposition that we know is not really us, but we want it to be us. And so we go to God with like this kind of the best amount of humility we can muster up. And we're like, can you please give me wisdom? Can you please give me patience? Can you please give me humility? Does God want you to be patient? Yes. Does God want you to be wise? Yes. Does God want you to be humble? Yes. So if you ask for those things, he will give them to you. But because we're so consumer-minded, because we get what we want, and we get it when we want it, and we get it as fast as we want it, and we get to be satisfied, and we get to fill our bellies, and we get to fill our minds, we get to fill our ears, we get to fill our houses, and we get to fill our cars, we get to fill our churches with whatever we want, because we got a ton of money and a ton of things that we want and can do. And because of that, we got this consumer mentality. So we go to God and we're like, give me wisdom. And we expect him to drop wisdom in our lap. We, we ask for patience and we expect him to drop patience in our lap. And we're going to instantly be able to wait. We're going to instantly have the wise answer. We're going to instantly be humble. That's not how God works. He can work that way. And there are times when he does. If you ask God for patience, what's he going to make you do? Wait. He's go- you want patience? I'll give you patience. 
You have to earn patience. You have to learn patience. So I'm going to make you wait. And he makes you wait. And you're like, come on, God. And he's like, you're still not patient. <laughs> right? Or like, God, give me wisdom. He's like, oh, you want wisdom? I'm not going to drop in your lap. I'm going to give you a painfully difficult situation. Navigate. And as you navigate, trust in me. And trust in my word. And my word will give you the truth and the answer and the wisdom that you need to get through that scenario. And when you come out on the other side, you will be wise. So when we ask for humility, what are we going to get? We're going to get humility? No. We're going to get broken. You want humility? God will humble you. He will break you down. He will reveal your sin. He will bring it to your mind and to your heart. He will demand you confess it. He will demand you bring it to the cross. He will demand that you find Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, the answer to what is breaking you down. He will demand repentance and you will be humbled. And when you recognize the severity of your sin in light of a holy and perfect God, you will have no other recourse but to fall on your face and go, who am I, who am I to stand before you at all, God? And through revealing to you your sin, he will humble you and break you and cause you to repent like Psalm 51. And we will say, God, you've broken my bones. Now fix me and restore me to the joy of my salvation so that I can tell your people about you. We need humility. And humility isn't just a request. Humility is a process. We need to ask for it. And when we do... God will give it. And he will give it through hard things. <clears throat> now that doesn't sound very encouraging. <laughs> but it's also incredibly encouraging. Because what do you get at the end of that hard stuff? Humility. And what is humility? Christ-likeness. On the other side, I know it's hard, but on the other side of it is Jesus like, we all talk about, we love Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, I want to worship Jesus, I want to teach Jesus and preach Jesus and talk about Jesus and worship Jesus and everything needs to be surrounded and, and, uh, surrounding Christ. Everything needs to be about Jesus and we preach that and we teach that and we say that and we try to live that. But the reality is Jesus is on the other side of a lot of hard things in life. And he's not just, and that's kind of maybe a bad analogy, because it's not like he's over there saying, you've got to do it on your own to get over here. That's not at all. He's the only one who's carrying you through the hard things. But the point is that, like, if we want to be more like him, we have to go through hard things. And that's exactly what Timothy has to do. Timothy wants to be Christ to the church. Timothy has to shepherd the church and lead the church and love the church and pray for the church and teach the church and establish doctrine and discipline the church and do all these difficult things in the face of people who are teaching false doctrines, people who are opposing his leadership, people who are running around making up their own little myths and, and, and their own uh, uh, theologies and they're spreading it around the church and the church is out of order, their practice isn't right, their worship isn't right. There's so many things going wrong in Ephesus and Timothy's got to come in there and be Christ? You think that they're going to like that? No. If he pre I, I can only imagine, like, 
I was telling you how hard it might be for me to preach 1 Timothy. I think it's way harder for Timothy to preach 1 Timothy in Ephesus than it is for me. I would imagine that most of us in this room agree with everything in this letter. Or at least we're looking at it going, well, it's hard to, uh, hard to agree with that, but it's the word of God, so I have to believe it. It is what it is. But, but the church in Ephesus, they're like, everything in this letter is directly about them. This is a personal letter. Imagine if I wrote a letter about all of you and then I read it publicly to everybody <laughs> and you were all in it. That would be hard to endure. And so there's a lot at stake here and Timothy's got a really hard job to step into this church to shepherd them, to love them, to comfort them, to lead them, to teach them and to discipline them and correct them and change the way that they do worship and do everything in a way that aligns with what Paul says in this letter so that the church is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not out of order. Because a church out of order will be seen as a chaotic, dismembered church to the world. So, Timothy has a very difficult job in front of him. And he has this letter from Paul that tells him how to do it. And we have the same letter. And so my hope and my encouragement for you today is that you would see the validity and the importance of this letter. This is a letter to the church written by God's elected apostle Paul, which carries absolute authority as it is. It is genuinely God's word for the church. And we already know that the Bible is our authority. And we, but what the pastoral epistles teach us is the importance of the church truly submitting to God's authority in Scripture through his elected church leaders. And what that means is the required character for following this letter is humility you need humility to submit to this letter and you need humility to submit to me teaching this letter and i need humility to submit to this letter and i need humility to submit to paul and teach his letter and i need humility to submit to christ and therefore submit to god so that i not only say what this letter says but i say it in a way that is most honorable and most glorifying to god which requires a lot of prayer for me so you need humility and i need humility if we're going to be the church I should clarify. You need humility and I need humility if we're going to be one of the churches that is in the 4,000 churches that adhere to biblical truth. Humility breeds submission. Submission to God and therefore submission to his chosen authorities on earth. That's not just the church, but say government, and submission to his chosen authorities in the church. And here's the thing. There's a point in all this. There's a conclusion to all this. And we'll get to it when we get to chapter 6, but I'm going to read this verse from chapter 6 to you right now. If we do that faithfully, if we follow that procedure of humility and submission to our proper authorities, if we do that faithfully, we will be able to fulfill that which Paul ultimately commands to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 14, which says... Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, 
obey the word and grow in Christ. You can't do that if we are not submitting to the proper authority in our lives. Children, submit to your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, men, submit to your church authorities and your local authorities. Everyone has to submit to their church authorities and local authorities and government authorities. I have to submit to Christ. I have to submit to Brian, who is my elder. I have to submit to the word. And you have to submit to your church leaders. And, you, and, and, and here's the thing, and I'm not going to dive into this, I'm just going to mention it because it's, it's such a sweet little twist in all of this idea of submitting. Ephesians 5.21, everybody has to submit to everybody. That kind of throws a wrench in the whole hierarchy of submission. And then Ephesians 5.21, Paul's like, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. problem isn't who you submit to in our heart. The problem is we don't want to submit to anyone. Nobody. I'm my own authority. Don't tell me what to do. I know what's right. I've read the Bible. I know what it says. I think this. I believe this. I believe that. Or, or, or look at your government and go, don't tell me what to do. I know what the Constitution says. I think this. I think that. I'm not going to submit. Or you say to your husband, if you're a wife, don't tell me what to do. I'm a grown woman. I can do whatever I want. Or you're a kid and you look at your parents and go, don't tell me what to do. I'm 10 years old. I know everything. <laughs> right? I mean, like, it doesn't matter who you have to submit to. The idea of submission is hard because we are arrogant and proud in our sin nature. And we don't want to submit. We want to be our own authority. We want to operate in autonomy, which is why the doctrine of free will, which is not biblical, the doctrine of free will is running rampant all over the church and all over the world, especially in America, because people love autonomy. They don't want to be held accountable to a sovereign God who holds them accountable to their sin, and they don't want to be held accountable to a church or church leaders. So they rebel without even realizing they're rebelling, and it creates dissension and division and problems in the church. But there's an answer. And I could tell you the answer is, submit! But that's not the point. You'll never submit properly if there is not humility. We all need to be humble so our submission is genuine. And if I'm genuinely humble, I will genuinely and properly submit to God's word. And if you're genuinely humble, you will genuinely and properly submit to your church leaders and to God's word and it will all fall in line, and it will be beautiful, and it will be precious, and it will be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, and it will be glorious, and it will be joyful, and it will be satisfying, and we will love one another, and we will enjoy each other's company, and we will be united, and we will do incredible things, and we will spread the gospel, and we will build the kingdom, and we will make Christ look glorious. If we're humble... Let's pray. We cannot do this on our own, God. We are so unbelievably dependent on you. We are so dependent on you that our next breath depends on you. Whether I live or die today depends on you. The future of Grace Church depends on you. 
the work that the people in this room will do for your kingdom depends on you. Our attitudes before we do that work depends on you. So we ask you, make us humble, and then go to work. Satisfy our souls in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.